Well, turn with me, if you would, to this morning, back to the book of Psalms, as we journey through that first part of the book. We're looking this morning at Psalm 22, just the first half or so, verses 1 through 18. We are so pleased, in part, that we don't have to look to the skies to find our Savior. God has given us his word that points very much to him this morning in this particular psalm. And as we begin a new year, I thought, what, a better, what, what better place there could be than to start in this particular psalm that both refers to David, the author, and his life, but also that Jesus himself quotes on the cross. You see, this psalm was written in a time of bitter distress when David despairs in his circumstances, even of his own life. Now, we don't know exactly the circumstances under which this psalm were written, but read this morning with me or follow along. Hear these words poured out from David to the Lord when it is not clear if or how God will answer. David writes these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bowls encompass me, strong bowls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We're going to pause there, not because it completes the psalm, but because the psalm is so wonderful, we're going to spend two weeks on it. But let's bow briefly in prayer. Father, by your grace, these are your words inspired by your Holy Spirit through the pen of David. We pray, Lord, that you will give us ears to hear them and hearts to understand them. And Lord, as we often pray from this place, we pray that if our words, our thoughts, our meditations, my words are not pleasing in your sight and consistent with your word, that they would pass away and never be heard from again. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What seems like a century ago, 
And so it was. It was 1999. When a small church in northeast Tennessee called me to serve as their pastor, I was fresh out of seminary in St. Louis, having graduated in the spring. It was now the fall, and I prepared to respond to the call, and I met with Presbytery's examination committee. I have to admit, when I met with that committee, I was not prepared for the questions they asked. In part, I was not prepared for the theological debate that was going on within their group, and I probably was a little overconfident coming into the meeting. And lo and behold, after what seemed to be hours and what seemed to be almost an attack form of questioning, that committee declined to recommend to Presbytery that my examination be sustained. I appeared before Presbytery not too long later because I was there just for that purpose without the committee's recommendation. And after the exam on the floor was given and all the pastors got a chance to ask their questions and because the Presbytery at that time was not getting along with each other, They had a long and lengthy debate while I was out of the room. And I came back, and they said, you have failed your examination. You are not permitted to go on to the field to serve this church. As you can imagine, I didn't know what to do. I didn't expect this outcome. And so I went back to my friends and my family, and I said, I don't know what to do next. And of course, I got all kinds of advice. Perhaps the best advice given was a professor who told me, well, if you feel called to that church, pursue it until the window closes. And so I did. I found myself a couple months later going back to Presbytery, this time not to be ordained, but to be licensed to preach and to come to the church by stated supply. And again, there was a lengthy examination on the floor. There was much debate, and by a close vote, they agreed to license me with the understanding that I would have two mentors, one on each each side of a theological debate, and I would be mentored until they felt I was ready to be a pastor. And so I did. A month later... Someone within the presbytery filed a complaint against presbytery for licensing me. And they distributed a letter all through presbytery to say that this guy not only is unqualified to serve in office, but he's not even a believer. And so I went back to presbytery at a called meeting. Distributed my own letter by permission of presbytery to defend my faith. Now I have to say, this was hard. I was young. I didn't have a lot of experience, even though my father and my grandfather and my brother and my uncle and others and my family had been pastors in other denominations. This was new to me. I had never been in the PCA as a member of a presbytery before. I'd only been in the PCA as a member of a church for a couple of years. I didn't know what to do. I prayed a lot. I sometimes doubted that I really was called to ministry But these were difficult times. There were times I felt powerless. This psalm tells us what to do in difficult times. It describes, first of all, faith in difficult times. And then it discusses prayer in difficult times. 
Now, lest you think that faith in difficult times is all rosy and will sustain you perfectly through every difficulty and every experience you have, then perhaps you didn't read the words of this psalm. You see, it seems to ebb and flow between someone who wonders if God is going to act and someone who realizes that God has a history of acting. You see, faith in difficult times is not static. It is not something in which we just are on an even keel and can just withstand any fiery dart of the evil one. Faith is something that we attach as an anchor because the waves are so difficult in life that sometimes we're on the high and sometimes we're certainly on the low. But look at the first verse. It's probably the most famous of all the verses in this chapter, although some of the other ones directly apply to the life of Christ as well. But these words were quoted by Jesus on the cross, and this is often where we consider these words. But these words were first penned by David. Again, we don't know the experience. We know lots of experiences David had. Sometimes he was on the battlefield. Sometimes he was at home in in dire circumstances in his household with all that went on in his home. But whatever the circumstance, he wrote this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. You see, if you live long enough, and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there are going to be times when you feel abandoned. That's what the word forsaken means here. Why have you abandoned me? Forsaken me. In other words, David is saying, I know you've been active in my life. I know you have chosen me and anointed me, placed me in office. You've given me wonderful promises. But at this moment, in these circumstances, it seems as if you have left me. You've abandoned me. In fact, in another place, David will write, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. There were times in David's life, this man after God's own heart, This man we lift up as a man of faith. There were times when this man felt as if God abandoned him. And so he offers, first of all, startling questions of forsakenness. Sometimes people will say, well, you can't ever question God. David did. He said this, why? He didn't say, Lord, it looks as if you may have abandoned me. Is this really the case? He actually said to God, why have you done it? In other words, the fellowship was not so sweet. It did not appear as if God was there. And so he asked the second question, why are you so far from saving me? In other words, you seem distant. I'm asking you for help and I don't get any answer. He says, why are you so far from the words of my groaning? A reminder that sometimes he doesn't even know what to pray for. The circumstances are so dire, he needs the spirit to interpret the groanings and the sighings for him to God. And God doesn't seem to answer. Well, you see, not only does he ask these startling questions, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel as if I don't have the right to ask such things before God. He feels abandoned despite constant prayers. Notice what he says. 
Day by day you don't answer. By night I find no rest. It just seems as if God doesn't care about him at this particular moment in time. And in this circumstance, this particular moment as he's writing these words or perhaps recollecting on the time period that these words were expressed, then he says at that moment it feels as if God is not there. But lest you think the faithful will always feel this way, the next moment is much different, isn't it? Verse 3, he says, yet you are holy. You see, during these times when we feel abandoned, we should reflect, as David does here, on the history of the Lord with his people. There are going to be times, perhaps it's even a particular situation or a particular uh, difficulty in your life that he may not give you the answer in your lifetime. He might not give us a particular answer in this generation. He might wait a long time to give us the answer we desire in times of oppression or persecution or other things. And yet in those instances where we reflect on the fact that God seems far away, we should also reflect on who God is. Here's his character. You are holy. Why would David think of that in this moment when he feels rejected and abandoned? He's thinking of that because of the reason why he would feel rejected and abandoned in a generic way. It's because sin alienates us from God. God is holy. David is not. He says, you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. There's a blessing that is here. He's dwelling in a sense, on the praises that he gives to Israel. And he says here, this relationship I see in the past. I know your character, but I also know your gracious responses. He says, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted. You delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So he's reflecting in his mind, God does act. God does respond. God does rescue In his gracious responses and rescues, David is placing his hope and his trust. But at the same time, in that moment, he's recognizing, what about me? He says, I see the history, I see what you did in Abraham and in Moses and in the people and in the times perhaps of the battles earlier in David's life. But at this moment, despite all that history, I see the alienation, I feel that because right now I feel like you don't care about me. And so he says this. Again, kind of the ebb and flow. The first little part says, I feel abandoned. The second part says, but I know your history. The third part here says, I am a worm and not a man. Why does David say that? Because at times not only will we feel abandoned, we will feel neglected. He's basically saying here, because I don't see your answer and because of the treatment of all the people around me that he's about to get to here, because of all those things, I feel as if I have lost my dignity. I'm no longer a man made in the image of God with all the dignity made a little lower than the angels, as Psalm 8 described, 
But he says, now I feel like a worm, the lowest of the low creatures, crawling in the dirt, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. He's having to put up with their hurtful scorn and how much it hurts. The people are around him. Here he is, the anointed of God, the leader of God's people, Israel. And in this circumstance, whatever it is, they're treating him as less than a human being, saying and mocking his faith. In one sense, they're saying, David, if you really did trust in God, then he would rescue you. But look at you. Look at you, you're in a dire position. This is what the world does, doesn't it? You have cancer? If you have cancer, that means you don't have enough faith. If you just had enough faith, then then we would understand you really are a man or woman of God. You're having trouble in your marriage, or at work, or in your relationships? I thought you were a Christian. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. And of course, those words applied to Jesus on the cross. Isn't that what they did? Even the criminals hanging on either side of him mocked and scorned Jesus. And the people around were saying, he trusts in God, let him deliver him. The very words of this psalm in action. Scorn when you feel neglected. What do we do during these times when we feel abandoned and neglected? Even when we've reviewed the history of God's work with his people, what else do we have to hang on to? David writes these words, verses 9 and 10, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. You see, during these times we should reflect on our history, our history, with the Lord from our birth. Some of you may be saying, I wasn't born into a Christian home. I became a Christian when I was an adult. I've perhaps only been a Christian for a couple of years or a couple of months or whatever it may have been. You say, how can we reflect on this? Well, then reflect on your new birth in Jesus Christ. When you have been born again in the wonderful grace of God to believe upon Jesus Christ, God is the one who has done this. He has caused you to be instructed to trust him by his spirit. He is the one who has a history of interaction with you. He's done the work, not you. It's not that you were a good person ready to believe in him because you were a sinner alienated from God, unable to choose to believe God or even to seek him, as scripture says. But God's spirit caused you to be born again to new life in Jesus Christ if you trust in him. And in those times of difficulty, those times of despair, when you feel abandoned and neglected, what must we do? We must, first of all, reflect upon God's history with his people. He is a saving God, but we also understand he has worked in my life, and he will work again. I remember that terrible weekend in my life when Zeke died. 2010, we told my family we weren't going to have any kids anymore. We thought we were done having children. 
We went to my dad's funeral in January telling everyone in the family, I don't think we'll have any more children. We've had what we're going to have. My wife on the way home got sick, very sick. We were expecting twins. It was wonderful. Everybody told us it was because of God's blessing, particularly from some other crises that had happened earlier in our family's lives. And so, therefore, I was excited. They were both going to be boys. We found out after a prenatal surgery that these boys had two Y chromosomes, a condition that men who have them don't even know they have them, but they were going to be very manly boys. I thought, that's great. So I named them Ezekiel and Zacchaeus. Ezekiel, because he was big and strong in the womb, they had a condition where one baby was getting too much blood, one was not enough, hence the prenatal surgery. I called the other one Zacchaeus because he was small. Zach and Zeke. And then one day when we went for the normal checkup after the surgery, we went. My wife was concerned that there might be something wrong. They looked at the tests, and they discovered that Zeke had died. This was not the first nor the last crisis in our family or in my life. But at that moment in time, it was a tipping point for me. Yes, I was a pastor. I'd now been a pastor. If you count my year of licensure and stated supply, I've been a pastor for 11 years. But that moment in that day, in that weekend, I was the one asking God why he had forsaken me. Unfortunately, I was not as faithful as David to consider God's holiness and his history with his people. I was just saying, Lord, it's not fair. I don't know why you've done this. Perhaps I should chuck it all and reject it. That weekend, Jennifer was concerned about me. And it was perhaps the most personally challenging time of my life. The most memorable time in my older two children's lives was the day I sat down with them on the couch and told them that one of the babies had died. To this day, at least one of them says this is one of the most significant events in their life. It was so personally challenging that I wanted to just get rid of it all and realize that at that moment, all the prayers that we had offered up, all the joy that we expressed in having these twins, all the things that seemed to be falling into place with a nice family, seemed to me at that moment to be as if God didn't care about me. But it's only by connecting the dots of God's work in my life and through history that just a few weeks later, I was able to preach the funeral of not only Zeke, but his twin brother, Zach, who lived one day. And I preached their funeral while my wife was in the hospital in ICU. How could I do that? Was it because I had such a strong faith? No, I didn't. But I had a strong God. I had a God who had a history with his people and a history with me. And at some point, the Spirit made me realize that only by God's grace did I have faith to begin with. And I didn't deserve any of the blessings that I thought I deserved. And it's only by God's grace that he could bring me from the precipice of looking over into the pit of destruction in my own life to strengthening me so that I could tell others of the mercies of God in the moment of loss. That's faith in difficult times. Not my work, but God's. 
But also it's important to maintain that communication with God in those times. That's what the next part of this psalm is, prayer. In essence, this is what the psalms are, prayer after prayer after prayer. It's people lifting up their praise to God, lifting up their request to God, asking God questions, giving every emotion that they have to God, and here he does it. Verse 11, he says, be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. You see, these prayers in difficult times, sometimes we just simply ask God to be there. We ask for his presence. You know, this is really, when you look through the pages of Scripture, this is really the great promise of Scripture that God would be with us. It's what he was to the Israelites in the desert in the pillar of fire by day. In the, or by night in the pillar of cloud by day. It's what he was to David in times of distress when he writes repeatedly about the presence of God in the Psalms. It's what took place in Elijah when Elijah says, it looks like I'm the only one left and God provided th- for him through a raven. And he said, no, you're not the only one. And he's the one that was promised when it says the Emmanuel would come that we looked at here last week on Christmas Day. God with us. And then the great promise of scripture, Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So sometimes there's that simple request, Lord, remind me and show me that you are near. Sometimes that's all we want, is to know that God is with us. And then, of course, what do we do? If we know that God is with us, if we know that he listens to us, even if we don't get the answer we expect, or even if we don't get an answer at all, we know that we can tell God what's going on in our life. Yes, I know God already knows. You know, being a, a, a believer in the sovereignty of God, we know God knows everything, but he still wants us to tell him. And David does. You know, sometimes we as parents... We know what's happened in the life of a child. Sometimes we don't. We're not sovereign. But sometimes we know very well what's happened in the life of that child. But we want them to tell us, don't we? We want them to share that moment with us and that experience with us through difficulty or through good times, whatever it is. And here he is. He describes the situation. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening, roaring lion. The description of the situation, David says, his enemies are both strong and ferocious. The idea of Bashan, this is the Golan Heights. The area here was more fertile, and so the cattle grew stronger and healthier there. So these are big cows or big bulls, ferocious, ready to attack him. They're like lions, ready to tear him to pieces. He describes his anguish. Powerless. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Of course, you know, here we don't take that literally. David didn't have a melted heart. He wouldn't be able to live, would he? But it says here, basically, he's powerless. He's weak. And he's dried up. The idea like a potsherd, that shard of pottery that's showing the, the broken nature of a vessel. It has no use. It's, he's useless and powerless and dried up. So dried up that the tongue sticks to his jaws. And he says, you lay me in the dust of death. Lord, you have abandoned me. I feel powerless and weak, unable to do anything. 
during Zach's brief life, just one day, my wife Jennifer got to hold this tiny baby about a pound and a half just once, and she had to be helped. She wasn't strong enough to hold it. I didn't understand at that moment as I was watching my son, who was likely to die in a few hours, I didn't understand that, that my wife and her recovery was literally dying as she tried to hold that baby boy. Her lifeblood was ebbing away because of complications from the delivery. After she was trying to hold that baby, I stayed in the ICU. I didn't even realize she was, or stayed in the NICU unit. I didn't even realize they were taking her in an emergency off to ICU to deal with her problems. She was powerless. I'm sure the circumstances were overwhelming. I know that in previous times of loss, she prayed and she prayed. And God, many times, didn't answer or said no. She would lay out before him her situation and her problems. What was it that was she was able to do that about? It was because she had faith and she was praying to God, laying out the circumstances, pleading for his answers and for deliverance. It's okay to do that. It's okay to say to God, look is where I am. I need help, and I want you to do this in my life. I don't know what to do. I don't know why this is going on. What is the purpose of this? What is the reason for this? To this day, I have no idea why some of the things happened in our lives that happened. I don't. And I probably won't know all those answers in this lifetime. And maybe when I get to heaven, I won't care so much because of the glory of God and the wonder of the kingdom even to ask those questions. But I do know this. God cared to hear his servants talk to him about their problems. He continues, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The enemies described here are predatory, and they're enclosing upon him. We don't know the circumstances. Perhaps this was on the battlefield. Perhaps this was when David was literally facing physical death by enemies that were surrounding him. I think perhaps one instance this may have been taking place was when he was older and he was unable to be as strong and wielding the weapon and he went out to war and he had to be rescued by his soldiers because they were about to take his life. Not only was he near death, But he was left for dead. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. When we look at this, we look at the the life of Jesus and how this happened at the cross. Why were they doing this at the cross? Because they recognized this man was going to die. This was the last thing you give up or the clothes on your back. And when the soldiers are about to gamble for your clothing, they're recognizing you're dead. There's no reason for you to have these clothes anymore. It's all over. And David is saying here, in this particular circumstance, when I felt abandoned and I felt powerless and weak and I've lost my dignity, I felt abandoned and neglected by you, I look at the enemies around me and they're leaving me for dead. It's all over. Now, thankfully, on the one hand, this psalm isn't over yet. 
because we're going to look at part two next week. But the other part of this is to remind ourselves this happens in the lives of believers. This isn't someone who's an unbeliever that we might say, hey, they deserve all this mess. No, this is the one who is the believer. Now, they also deserve this mess because they're sinners. And they alienated themselves from God. They're rebels. They deserve everything we get. There are those amongst us who when you ask the question, how are you today? They'll say, I'm better than I deserve. That's a theological answer. It's not always the answer that gives the personal answer of what they really feel. But here is a reminder We find ourselves in those situations. In David, it indicates his faith and prayer in these times of distress. That his life is not all a bed of roses. It's not always as if we feel so strong in our faith that we can withstand anything even at the moment. It ebbs and it flows. Sin has made life hard. And for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we live it out with all its difficulties, but especially when we understand the Lord's presence with us. But we also have to look to Christ's use of this psalm, don't we? In Christ, the prophetic details are played out in his passion. When he's on the cross and he says those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It takes new meaning to us because this man was without sin. There was no reason for him to be alienated from God because he was God and is God. In fact, he had never committed a sin, though tempted in every way, just as we are. And the prophetic details of this passion describe to us the alienation that he felt because our sins were placed on him. You see, it wasn't just someone who was being separated from his father in a lifetime, after decades This was someone who was with the Father for all eternity, and yet that moment on the cross, he recognized that because of the sin he was taking upon himself and the penalty due for sin, death, then he recognized he was separated from God at that moment because of the penalty of our sins. And yet this fully displays, when Jesus says these words on the cross, it fully displays his knowledge of this psalm that God does rescue his people and in the end he would not abandon his own son. You see, it fully displays our hope. Jesus endorses the alienation between God and sinners, and yet he fully displays our only hope, the God who rescues his people. Was David rescued at this moment? Assumedly, because he wrote these words. Was David always rescued from death? No, he died and is buried. Was David always Kept from the difficulties of life? Absolutely not. And so we must not expect life to be rosy when we become a Christian. In fact, when I teach classes sometimes to new Christians, I say, now your life is harder. You're no longer concerned about your own things and your own pleasure and your own details. Now it's a battle. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are against us. And there are going to become times when your life is so difficult, you're going to wonder if it's all worth it. But by God's grace, we have these words. God is the God who rescues. 
When Jesus said these words on the cross, we recognize that this was not just a story. This was a reality that the one perfect Son of God became sin for us that we might have life. In him we have hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to reflect upon your mercy, your grace, your love for us, your history with your people, your personal history with us. Lord, there might be those amongst us this morning who are going through some of these dark times in their lives. And there are some amongst us who may not have experienced it, but will. We pray, Father, that you will encourage us by your spirit and by these reminders that in Christ we have salvation. He who was willing to undergo the miseries of this sin that we deserve, and yet by your grace accomplished redemption on the cross. We thank you in Jesus' name.